0: Good morning. I hope uh, you're all well. Um, and welcome back to Thursday morning Torah, or wherever you are. For all I know, it could be Thursday night Torah. Uh, I just did a Zoom event in Israel, and people were on all sorts of different time zones somewhere in LA, somewhere in New York, somewhere in Israel. Um, but uh, wherever you are, we are bound together by. Uh, By the both, (laughs) both the internet and the pandemic. So, by the good and the bad, or by the the questionable and the difficult. In any case, um, with that absolutely useless preamble, uh, I want to I want to talk today. We finish off B'har Buchukotai, the last two two parashiot of the uh, of the book of Leviticus. And for those of you who want to follow along, I'm going to read just a very short. passage from Leviticus, and then we're going to talk about the meaning of this very peculiar uh, institution that we have come to know uh, as sabbatical. But if you think about it, it's very strange, and we're going to try to explain the Torah's reasons as best we can for why uh, the sabbatical is instituted in the land of Israel. And here, I'm quoting from Leviticus chapter 25 verses 8 to 10. So once again Leviticus chapter 25 verse 8 to 10 uh, and it's in Parshat Bihar which is the parsha, the section of the Torah that we read this week in synagogue or for synagogue since we can no longer say in synagogue uh, at least for a while. Here's what it says, you shall count off seven weeks of years seven times seven years for those of you who have forgotten your times tables that's 49 years so that the period of seven weeks of years gives you a total of 49 years i got it right then you shall sound the horn loud and in the seventh month on the 10th day of the month the day of atonement you shall have the horn sounded throughout your land and you shall hallow the 50th year now you shall proclaim release or liberty throughout the land, thereof. Um, it shall be a jubilee for you. Each of you shall return to his holding, and each of you shall return to his family. Now, first of all, the Kratem drawer, you shall call liberty to all the inhabitants thereof. Um, I will give you five seconds to remember where that verse is quoted, and I will give you a hint. I know the verse well because I grew up in Philadelphia. Yes, it is engraved on the Liberty Bell, Um, and the idea of the verse, of course, is not so much um, that you will have political liberty, although Obviously, political liberty is the way that the Liberty Bell deploys it and the way that it was understood uh, by, uh, by the Americans during the revolution. But here it's something somewhat different because you saw what follows is that the land reverts to its original owner, um, which means that in ancient Israel, in theory, although there are all sorts of workarounds that the rabbis use, but we need not get into them now. The maximum period for which you can sell land is 49 years, 49, almost 50 years. Um, on the 50th year, it, it reverts back. Now, why would the Torah institute a, a rule like that? Um, that's a very curious rule, after all, to be instituted and to the extent that I can see in addition to what I'm taping on to the extent that I can see, uh, if I can find those of you who are on Facebook and want to make suggestions, you are certainly welcome to make suggestions about why that might be. Um, but I'm going to, I don't know whether I can, uh, whether I will be able to see those in real time or not. So let me just tell you the reasons that I'm aware of, or at least, uh, That the tradition has bequeathed to us about why it is that the um, Torah insists that land revert back to its original owner every 50 years. Um, First of all, and and maybe most fundamentally, the, um, the Torah begins, as you know, with the creation of the world. And Rashi asks a famous question, which is, why doesn't the Torah begin with the Jewish people, basically with Abraham? And his answer, which is one of many answers that the tradition gives, but his answer is relevant here. He says, the reason that the Torah begins with the creation of the world is because it wants to establish that everything belongs to God. And God can apportion out land like the land of Israel any way God chooses because it's his. And the yovel, the jubilee in this interpretation is a means of establishing that even though you think you own the land, you don't own the land. You are a renter, not an owner. And because of that, You have to give the land back to demonstrate that this is not a permanent possession of yours. Um, This recalls uh, one of my teacher's explanations, uh, again, drawn from tradition, uh, and and the example that he used of um, why it is that Jewish law feels that it has the right to condemn suicide. I mean, after all, you're you. If you decide to dispose of you, why don't you have the right, according to Jewish law? American law is a separate question. We'll let the American lawyers decide that. But according to Jewish law, why can't you kill yourself? It's your life. It's given to you. You want to take it. You feel you have sufficient reason, take it. And the reason that is given primarily in the Jewish uh, tradition is that, in fact, it is not your life. It is given to you on loan. It is given to you by God who gets to choose when to reclaim it. And that's not a decision you're allowed to make. And I remember uh, my teacher in uh, of, of Jewish philosophy, Elliot Dorf, in uh, when I was beginning in rabbinical school, if I remember his analogy accurately, he said, it's like an apartment. He said, you live in an apartment. Everyone knows you're going to put up a few posters. The rug is going to have some, you know, some wear and tear and maybe there'll be holes in it and things won't look the same way. You're not going to give it back in the exact same condition that you got it. In. But you're not allowed to trash the place because you're renting it. It doesn't belong to you. He said, and that's your body. Your body is like an apartment. You dwell in it according to Jewish tradition. It is given to you for the duration of your life, but you aren't allowed to trash it because it's not yours. And therefore, taking care of your body is a mitzvah because you're taking care of something that God gave you as a gift, a loan and a gift um, to care for, for the duration of your year. So now transfer that same reasoning to, for example, saying a, a blessing when you eat something. Since everything belongs to God, when you eat something, you're eating something that is given to you by God, but is really God's possession. And therefore, the Talmud says everybody who eats without saying a blessing is a thief. Because what is the payment that God asks for your eating the apple to say, to say the blessing over the fruit of the tree? Um, And each each way that the tradition uh, encourages us to look at the world is to understand that The natural human inclination is to say, this is mine. It belongs to me. But that's always a provisional statement in Judaism, because none of this belongs to me. Most of it was here before I got here, and most of it will be here when I'm gone. So in what sense can I genuinely say it belongs to me? It is, in fact, just something that is given to me as I pass through this world and eventually um, I will have to give it back because I will have no choice. And the same thing the Torah does with um, land, that is, you must give this back because it is not yours. There's a beautiful story about the Chafetz Chaim that I love to tell. was the was Chaim was probably the most famous rabbi of the 19th century, a great legal authority, a very pious man. Lots of stories are told about him. So once a group from America was in Raden in Poland, where he lived, and they went to see the famous Chofetz Chaim. I mean, obviously, you're going to be nearby. You want to see the most famous man uh, in the traditional Jewish world. And they go and they find the Chofetz Chaim and he's there and he's he's sitting at a small rickety desk with a few books. And someone said to him, where's all your stuff? And he said, where's all of yours? And so the visitor said, well, I'm just passing through. And the Chofetz Chaim said, so am I. And that idea, the idea that this lavish possession, this giant house, these thousands of books, these clothes, these everything, that their mind is an illusion. They're all on loan. And so the first and most fundamental and in some ways most important realization about the sabbatical year is it teaches us a great truth of life, which is we are temporary and we own nothing. That's one. Um, So the second is that it is very complex to talk about Judaism's attitude towards economics. Um, There are different strains in the Jewish tradition and different strains in the Torah. um, And it surely is the case um, that as you you well know, in Jewish history, sometimes Jews have been associated with communism. Sometimes Jews have been associated with capitalism. Um, There are various kinds of sources in the Torah that support various kinds of economic policies. And it's a complex question and I'm not gonna enter into it, okay? However, there is a consistent concern on the part of the Torah that the wealthy should care for the poor. That never changes. In fact, uh, Maimonides writes somewhere that he has never seen a Jewish community that didn't have a tamchui, which is a, a communal plate. In other words, he's never seen a community where there was not a concern that the poor should be able to to benefit from the largesse of those who were wealthier. Judaism early on didn't set up a welfare state, but set up a welfare procedure, community, so that the poor would not starve and not be alone. And the second explanation of the Yovel is that it reverts back because the accumulation of wealth from someone who buys more and more and more and more property is unstoppable without some mechanism to make sure that that wealth gets redistributed back to the original owner and there isn't these vast inequalities in the society. Um, So that is uh, the second, um, and we can talk more, uh, maybe we'll have another class on that, on the Jewish conception of economy and property and so on, it is a complex and interesting question, uh, and uh, and certainly deserves some time. And then the third is that, and and this this is a kind of um, a kind of metaphorical uh, meaning that only came into existence really with the state of Israel, or at least the beginnings of the state of Israel with Rob Cook. And that is that the yovel represents the concept of renewal. Um, And that Israel itself was in a kind of yovel, a long, long, long one, because for thousands of years, it was in other ownership hands, but it reverts now to the original owner in uh with the creation of the state of israel and therefore the yovel is really a concept of renewal uh, not a concept of reversion right it's not going back to the old ways it's rather to renew the ways of old which is not the same thing that is it's taking what was and making it new again and therefore The person who, after all, inherits the land back is unlikely to be the same person, could be, but it's unlikely to be the same person or not for very long who originally sold the land. And the person who inherits it back will be new blood and a new generation and be able to renew it. And this notion of Rav Cooks can be expanded again into something fundamental about the Jewish tradition because the tradition teaches us that Every teaching, mitzvah, and so on, can be renewed for a new generation and will have ever deeper meanings. Um, So the idea of a sabbatical, for example, uh, has come into the uh, academic world as every X number of years, you take this, not a Jubilee, which is what we're talking about the 49th year, but a sabbatical every seven year, which is part of the cycle of the Jubilee. Um, you take that sabbatical uh, because everyone needs rest and renewal. And the Shabbat, the one seventh of the week, again, is a sort of mini marking point on the way to the Yovel, which is the great renewal and reversion. And this notion that human life is not just a linear one, it's not just that you go forward, but at every stage you also have to circle back and renew, um, and that life moves in a spiral, not just in a straight line. Uh, This goes throughout the Torah, because the point of a tradition that has ancient and presumably important teachings is that those teachings have to be both learned and relearned and reapplied and that the world will constantly throw up different situations. So the person who inherits back the land may grow different crops or in a different way than the people to whom they originally sold the land. And this idea, the idea that you have to constantly mix things up and shift things, um, is seen, for example, in the insistence, in the Torah's insistence, that Moses, the greatest leader in the history of the Jewish people, doesn't get to lead the people into the land. Because even the greatest leader at a certain point needs to hand over leadership to someone who has learned the lessons of the past, but can apply them now in a new way. Um, The world constantly needs to renew itself in a certain way. And and not to put too fine a point on it, although I'm going to, um, in some ways you can see the pandemic as a jubilee. That is the world now stops, not that it reverts to its original owner, although I suppose <laughs> the resurgence of animals in various places that I see articles about are kind of a reversion to the original owner. It's like, hey, there are no human beings around here. I think I'll come out of hiding. Um, but it is a pause. For the natural world to renew itself to some extent. I read an article about how the Great Barrier Reef is beginning to regenerate, which they thought would never happen so quickly. Um, and, and the natural world is renewing itself in the absence of our constant use and absorption of its capacities. And it reminds us of the wisdom of letting the land lay fallow and of letting it revert to people who once had it, who will now have renewed energy to work it again. And also that, um, the world in, in all its fullness is ultimately God's and God's design for the world is something that, um, is something that, uh, should be recalled and, uh, and, and made new periodically by each generation as they both, uh, preserve the old and as Rav Cook said, to preserve the old and to sanctify the new. Not that the new is bad um, and not that the old is bad, but that the two in harmony uh, create a tradition. With these Bahar and Bechukotai, we conclude the third book of the Torah, the book of Leviticus and the book of Leviticus is a sort of pause, in a way, to give us the um, to give us the uh, the um, rules for the priesthood, uh, which is what a lot of Leviticus is taken up with, and various other codes and ideas. The holiness code is uh, contained in the book of Leviticus. Um, you shall be holy, for I have the Lord your God am holy. Uh, and and various rules that appertain to holiness and then in the book of Numbers It's almost as if there's a pause in Leviticus for all these regulations that are important And will be important when you go into the land and the book of numbers sort of re- resumes the narrative Remember in hebrew the book of numbers is called bami in the wilderness um And so you have again just to keep the arc of the narrative clear in your mind as we conclude Leviticus you have Genesis, which is the creation of the world and the um, and the saga of families. Then you have Exodus, which is the story of the enslavement and liberation from Egypt and the beginning of the wanderings in the desert and the receiving of the Torah. Then you have a pause, in a way, in Leviticus, where you get a whole where, where there's a lot of legislation, including especially the legislation for the priests, so that when the temple is built they will be able to do the sacrifices in the temple properly. And then you go back in Bamidbar in Numbers to resume the journey. And then, of course, in Deuteronomy, you have Moses's final speech before he dies and the people prepare to go into the land that was promised, which happens not in the Torah, but in the book of Joshua. Um, and uh, and this cycle, of course, becomes new all the time. Um, and... Uh, the Jubilee is in some ways the pattern for that. That is, it returns again and again and again, and each time takes on additional meaning. Uh, At a time when we actually are lucky enough to have an Eretz Israel, to have a land of Israel, the laws of the sabbatical and the Jubilee um, have some relevance, although it is certainly not true that in the modern state of Israel, all property reverts to the original owner uh, after 50 years. Um, But they certainly have some relevance to the way that the land is tended and cared for. And it reminds us again, which is something that most of us are very far from, that originally uh, Judaism was, after all, an agricultural uh, tradition. And that our connection to the land, to growth, to cycles of land, to farming, all of that was deeply intertwined with the Jewish tradition, that we were not deracinated, which is literally plucked up from the land, but we were rather planted in the land. And when that was true, we had a sense, a deeper sense, I think, than most of us do of God's gift of the natural world. Um, And I think especially at this time, when so much of our lives is lived indoors perforce, because we have to be, uh, we can appreciate what a tremendous gift the natural world and the beauty of nature is. And, uh, And I think I speak for all of us when I tell you that we can't wait to return to it. Anyway, there you go. There's the yovel, the jubilee, and I look forward to seeing you on Shabbat morning, and then again for classes next week. Take care.